you can turn to 2 Kings. We've been going through First uh, and Second Kings together for 16 or 17 weeks. I don't know if my week count on my notes is correct anymore, um, but something like that. And so what I want to do here is kind of survey a large section in Second Kings where there's a series of stories that are illustrative of a few principles. And I've got four, okay? I'll do two this morning and two next week covering this whole section. And if you'd like notes, by the way, you can uh, pick them up on the back table. There's a couple of tables back there you can grab notes. If you're watching this online, you can click on the description of the video and get a link to the notes. Um, so I have four, four things. And if you've noticed in 2 Kings especially, the, the kings themselves sort of take a back seat to the prophets. It's a shift that happens. And there's a theme of God speaking to his people. He's being faithful to speak to his people over and over and over and over again even though they themselves have been totally unfaithful. Just rebellious and unfaithful. And it's a, a, a display of the grace of God that he speaks to us at all. Like he doesn't have to talk to you. He doesn't have to give you his word. He doesn't have to encourage you. He can be silent. He would be within his rights to be silent and not speak. Especially when you read this story in the context of all that we've seen so far through these books. The unfaithfulness and rebellion and idolatry, like they're not even worshiping God at this point. And he's still sending his prophets repeatedly to them. And I see four types of responses to that word in this section, okay? And I think it's interesting that this kind of mirrors Jesus' parable of the soil and the sower, if you remember that story. It's a very similar idea. The, the four are, one, obedience, that's a soft heart. The second would be rebellion, which is a stubborn heart. The third is impatience, which is a superficial heart. And four is cynicism, which is a skeptical heart. And we'll look at all the first two this morning, obedience and rebellion. And probably next week I'll give you another example of obedience, because I think you'll see this this morning, it's really helpful to juxtapose the disobedience over next to the obedience and to see the two at the same time, right? So God, if you remember our enemy right now in the story, you have, you have Israel, Judah, and they're constantly fighting against Syria. That enemy changes, and we add some a little later. But right now in the story, it's Syria, led by King Ben-Hadad. We've met him already uh, a few weeks ago. He's back, or this might be one of his sons, we're not really sure. And this man named Naaman, who is the commander of the army of Syria. So keep in mind, this guy has led the armies that have been killing God's people, okay? He's supposed to be the bad guy in the story, and we'll see that flipped here at the beginning. So let's read 2 Kings 5, 1 through 5. It says, Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. 
Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. She's referring to Elisha. Verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. It's an enormous amount of wealth. So a couple of things to note here. One is that Naaman is a man of valor, but for the wrong team. He, so when it says, describes him as a hero and a man of valor and a great warrior, right? He, he's describing all that valor is pointed against Israel. That valor has been used to kill Israelites. He's, it's incredible that he's described that way by the author of Kings. Not only that, but he has leprosy. <laughs> he, he is as unclean as you can get in the eyes of the Jews. He is untouchable, and he's wicked, and he's, on, he's trying to kill us. And he apparently is quite good at it. He's not only good at killing himself, he's quite good at organizing other killers to kill people. This is, this is Naaman. But there's this servant girl who is unnamed, which I think is significant, who has been captured, stolen from her home by Naaman and or his soldiers during a battle. Stolen, kidnapped, and made a slave in the household of Naaman, serving his wife. And she's there doing her thing, whatever slave girls, unnamed slave girls do, who've been captured from conquered enemies. And she sees her, her lord, who is Naaman, suffering with leprosy. And she finally speaks up to her mistress, who, Naaman's wife, and says, you know, if only he were in Israel and could connect with Elisha, Elisha could cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman is so desperate that he gathers up a bunch of wealth because he figures, well, maybe I can pay my way through to get to Elisha. Now, these are people he's been trying to kill. For Naaman, these are the enemy. These are the people he's been organizing his army to destroy and steal. And now he's going with his hat in his hand or his shekels of silver in his hand, hoping he can buy his way. The other important note is right there in verse 1. It says, by him, him being Naaman, Yahweh had given victory to Syria. Does that bother you a little bit? God has changed teams. God is now supporting and enabling wicked, pagan, idol-worshipping Syria to win over his people because his people are being unfaithful. Syria is a judgment against Israel. God is sovereign even over victories and wins and losses. He's sovereign over it. 
And thirdly, there's a little girl that had been taken from Israel in battle and is now a servant to Naaman's wife. And she is the representative, not so much of Israel, because Israel is being unfaithful. She's a representative of God in a pagan land. Not by her choice. What's happened to her is tragic. I don't want to gloss over that, but it's also by God's design. That should rattle your theology a little. Shake the snow globe. That's what I've been thinking lately. I feel like God just wants to shake our snow globe a little bit, get things moving. And that's one of those things. God has sovereignly allowed the bad guys to win over the good guys, and he's sovereignly allowed a sweet little girl to be stolen from her home and taken into a pagan wicked place so that she can bear witness to the power of God in Elisha. Because look what happens. Verses 5 to 15, it says, And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, Quote, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Ben-Hadad did not understand the situation. He didn't say, he was supposed to say, I've sent him so that Elisha can cure him of his leprosy. Instead, he thinks the king, is going, king of Israel is going to cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? To kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Just a bunch of numbskulls are in charge. You ever feel that way? <laughs> yeah, just, it's almost funny if it wasn't so tragic. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Thank God for Elisha. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, which is funny, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. I love that Elisha did not go out to see him. This is a key point in the story. He says, go wash in the Jordan, the dirty Jordan, seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He has been offended. His pride has been offended. Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. By the way, I'm not going to read all the next part, but 
Elisha rejects the gift, but his servant sneaks off after and takes a little for himself. And Elisha curses him. He says, the leprosy that came off of him will come on to you now. And the servant gets leprosy because of his greed. Verse 15 here is the clear confession of faith in God. He says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman has become a Christian. He has now confessed there is all the gods we serve in Syria are not gods. There is only one God, and his name is Yahweh, and he's not here. He's in Israel. For some reason, he's still in Israel. You guys aren't worshiping him, but I will. The pagan commander of the armies of your enemy. Naaman is more soft-hearted towards God than any other king since the early years of Solomon. If you've been following along with us through this series, you've seen that to be true over and over and over again. The guy that was supposed to be the most soft-hearted towards God has been the hardest-hearted towards God. And here, God has to go to the Gentile enemies of Israel to find someone who is soft-hearted towards him. So then, as the story goes... Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, Naaman's boss, is once again at war with Israel. But God kept telling Elisha that Ben-Hadad's plans and besting him at every turn. It's wonderful. Ben-Hadad somehow didn't get the memo that there's only one God and he's in Israel from his commander. And it's so bad that Ben-Hadad thought that he had a traitor in his court. Every time we move out and sneak out and try to do something and, and, and win a battle, they, they're way ahead of us because Elisha behind the scenes is going to his king saying, hey, God told me what Ben-Hadad is doing. You need to go here and do this and do that. And they win every time. And Ben-Hadad can't understand what's going on other than there must be a traitor. So he confronts his officers and they told him, no, this is Elisha. They have a prophet. Ah! <sighs> There's Jedi's on their side. <laughs> Ben-Hadad's answer was to send his soldiers with chariots at night to find and kill Elisha, which I think we have learned at least at this point is a bad idea. So they find him, they find out where he lives because he's not hiding, and this is what happens next. 2 Kings 6, 15-24. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. <laughs> then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They were there the whole time. He just couldn't see it. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way. This is not the city. You're lost, you're confused, you're in the wrong place. He says, follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. <laughs> and he led them, Elisha, he's a funny dude. I mean, 
He's messing with them. He led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. I think it's an amazing contrast. The stubbornness and the foolishness of Ben-Hadad in verse 24 is astounding. He has just witnessed yet again another prophet, not just defeating his armies with more armies, but defeating them with the power of God. Just praying. That's all he does here is pray, God, let my servant see how many actual warriors are out there. And what he sees is angelic chariots of fire and, you know, all that. So now he, he sees that. He reverses that prayer on the bad guys and says, let them be blind. And then he tricks them into going into their camp, their city, and then sets them free. All he does is pray, just like Elijah. And Ben-Hadad still wants to lay siege to Israel. This is pure rebellion from a stubborn heart on the part of Ben-Hadad. He has been beaten miraculously at every turn by God through his prophet Elisha. Yet Ben-Hadad continues to stubbornly rebel against God. He, God has proven himself far more incredibly to Ben-Hadad than he did even to Naaman. Naaman's leprosy just went away. Rebellion is always about authority. A rebellious heart wants to be in charge of itself and does not want anyone to be in charge of them. And it's usually accompanied by foolishness. Rebellious people do foolish, silly things that people with soft hearts look at and go, why in the world are you doing that? You know how this is going to end. You know where this is going to go. You know what this is going to do to you, to your family, to your friends, to your life. You are surrounding yourself with dynamite and, and lighten the match. What are you doing? That's what rebellion does. It's a pure kind of deep stubbornness. Rebellion against God want, means that you do not want God to determine your identity, your desires, your opinions, or your decisions. Rebellion is the attempt to take the power of creation out of the Creator's hands and make yourself your own Creator. Ben-Hadad just doesn't want God to be in charge. He wants what he wants, and he'll throw bodies at it all day long, so long as he doesn't have to submit to someone else. That's rebellion. Rebelling against God is something like trying to rebel against gravity. You're going to get hurt, and you'll look pretty foolish on the way down. It's like jumping off of a cliff and going, shaking your fist at gravity on the way down. 
It's like we all knew this was going to happen. Don't we see this in, our, in kids, those of you who are parents, and your little ones, when they become defiant? And, and this is a, a little person who, if you left them alone for an hour, they'd probably die. They would wander off into traffic. They would eat something that they can't swallow. They, would, um, they wouldn't eat at all. They can't change their own diapers. And they are standing there defiantly refusing to do what you say. Their only source of life protection and their only resource at all is you. And they are defying you with this red face, anger, and rage. I won't ask for a show of hands because we know every single parent in the room has experienced this. And it, it's simultaneously laughable and convicting because you recognize the same silliness in your own heart. Because this is how we are with God. It's like rebelling against gravity. Have you noticed that the world we live in is willful, unrepentant rebellion? against the absolute authority of our creator God. Have you noticed this around you? And how we can all see where it's going? And how it's at times laughable, but also tragic? I'm not referring to one or two social issues like gender, sexuality, and politics. Those are the surface tremors of a deeper problem of the pot rejecting the potter's hand. All together, wholesale. You do not define me, who I am, where I'm going, what I think, how I feel, what I'm about, what my identity is, what my purpose is, what, my, what my, the meaning of my life is. God does not define, no one defines that for me. It's rebellion against everything. Every authority that exists in the world is now rebelled against. It doesn't matter where it comes from. I define me. I am my own creator. That is at the root of what we see. The world has jumped off a cliff and is cursing gravity as it plummets. Romans 1 tells us all about it. 18 verse 23. You can read the whole chapter. It says, I'll just give you a sample. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's describing the state of mankind from the beginning. But it sounds like a description of our world right now, does it not? Just remind yourself for a minute that this is the story of humanity from the beginning, not just right now. I think this is why it's helpful to see the obedient and soft heart of Naaman next to the rebellious heart of King Ben-Hadad. It reminds us that all is not lost. 
We are the servant girl. You're not Naaman. You're not a king. You're the exiled servant girl who has no name. All we have is the knowledge that the man of God is what the world needs. And our only job is to serve and to bear witness. That's our only job. The servant girl could not heal the leper. And she knew it. It's part of why she had to speak up. If she could do it, she would have just said so. She just would have done it. She had to say, she had to speak up. I mean, how awkward would that have been? If only he could get to, you know, the people you stole me from, <laughs> to Elisha the prophet, who in this story really is a stand-in for Jesus. All we have, we, in and of yourself, you have no power. The thing that makes your prayer powerful is not the words coming out of your mouth. The thing that makes your prayer powerful is who you're praying to, who's listening to your words. The thing that makes your faith move mountains is not the size of your faith, it's who your faith is in. That's why it only takes a mustard seed. That's Jesus' point. It's not, that, it's not that you have to get a mustard seed. It's that any amount of faith is enough to heal lepers, raise the dead, move mountains from one place to another, completely change the world, to reach over into a pagan, wicked nation that is trying to kill you and reach over and rescue a lost soul in that place. Not by even Elisha the prophet, not by a king, not from anyone who's been anointed by anyone. It's a nameless little servant girl with a tragic story who was stolen from one place against her will and put in a wicked place and forced to live there and serve. And she remained faithful to God in that place. How easy would it have been for her to grow bitter and frustrated with her situation and say, I'm not going to help him out. He's my oppressor. I'm not going to speak and bear witness to Christ, to him in this place. I got my own problems. I'm having to serve these people that I don't like in a place that is unfamiliar to me where I get no encouragement. Nothing at all. All I get is told, your God is dead. Forget him. Just assimilate to this culture. And somehow she manages not to do that, and instead she speaks and bears witness. One sentence out of her mouth, and look what happened. The world needs to see a church that acknowledges God in all its ways. A church that does not join the world, or curse the world, or retreat from the world. Those are the three options that we often buy into. Either I'm just going to, if you can't beat them, join them. So I'm going to be just like the world. I'll watch what they watch. I'll think what they think. I'll buy into the whole thing because I just got to live. I'm just not going to have a filter. It's just all going to come in. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Or I'm going to stand in the middle of the world and curse it. Shake my fist at it and be the raving lunatic on the street corner 
who just curses everyone and wishes they'd all just be quiet and go away. Or we think we have to retreat into the church bunker and hide and just wait out the storm. We're just waiting here while the hurricane's blowing and just pray Jesus comes back. Those are all bad options. Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. And our example is Jesus. He could have stayed there and watched the world burn. He could have. He had every right because we're just a bunch of rebellious, hard-hearted idolaters. But instead, he comes here in the flesh and walks around and he testifies about himself. I'm the one. I'm the guy. Proverbs 3, 5 to 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Verse 6 is the antidote to Romans chapter 1. In all your ways, in everything you do, acknowledge God. Romans 1 says, we saw God, saw who he is, saw he's the creator, and said, no, I'm not going to acknowledge you anymore. I'm doing my own thing. I'm now my own creator. Now I'm in charge. And the result of that was foolish thinking, darkened thinking, and a whole bunch of like insanity. All the insanity we live in right now. Proverbs says, acknowledge him, and what will he do for us in response? He will make straight your paths. Just simple acknowledgement of God is all he wants. He wants your worship. He wants you to say, hey, this is all for you. Every, that breath, that heartbeat was yours. Every gift I have, everything I do, everything I own is all yours. Every blessing I have, every bad thing I have, it all comes from you. All of it. I acknowledge you in all my ways and God's response is he makes straight the path. Don't you want God to make the path straight in the world? This is what we bring. Naaman didn't have to trust God completely. Get this. Did you notice this in the story? He doesn't come to repentance before he gets in the river. He's still like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What, what good will it do to bathe in this dirty river. I'm not even going to get clean. He said, go bathe in the Jordan. This is dirty, muddy, nasty. I could go home and do this in a much cleaner place. This makes no sense to me at all. And his servants say to him, just do it, man. Just do it. You came all this way. He's Elisha after all. Just do it. See what happens. So he just does it. Can't you see his face when he's doing it? His hands aren't up in the air crying full of expectation. Oh, the Lord is about to meet me in this nasty river. There's none of that. He's just, all right, and he's irritated because he hasn't been honored the way he thinks he should be. And why would God do it this way? He knows that Elisha could just wave his hand over it and it would be gone. But he just does it because simple, simple obedience. His faith is so tiny, you can barely see it on the page. His faith is only big enough to stand in the water 
three times. And what God does is he completely heals him and his faith expands. And he says, there's no other God but this one. Same thing with the servant girl. The servant girl didn't, do you see how little she did? She didn't have a great speech. She didn't tell a bunch of stories about how Elisha and Elijah before him had done great miracles to, you know, to build her faith in his. She didn't have a gospel track to hand him with nice artwork. She didn't have a John Piper sermon clip. Because no one watches sermons anymore, but a little 30-second inspirational clip with music behind it. She didn't even have that. She had no social media at all, in fact. And all she did was say, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could be in Israel with Elisha? Because surely you'd be healed then. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great? I don't know. And this, that's it. That's all it took. She certainly wouldn't see herself as a hero. She certainly wouldn't expect us to be talking about her now thousands of years later. She's just a servant girl. And then there's no record of her doing anything after this of worthy of note. It's this one moment where she speaks up one time awkwardly in her situation. So I'd like to pray for... Um, next week we'll get to the impatience and cynicism, which is equally convicting. But I think we have to begin with ourselves and our own inclination towards rebellion. I think it's very easy, like I said, to just point at the world and say, wow, but what a bunch of re rebellious, awful foolishness. And not look at ourselves and our own inclination to want to be in charge of ourselves. And we first repent of that. And so I want to do that first. And then I want to, to pray for people. I want people to come up in just a minute who... Just want to be a good servant girl or boy. Who just want to be nameless, but want to be used by God to testify to the power and the goodness of Christ in the world. That are willing to say, God, if you need to take me captive and place me in a difficult place in the world where I don't know how to act or how to talk or how to navigate the complexities of the rebellion around me, but I'm willing for you to drop me in and I'm telling you all I can do is say, hey, wouldn't it be great if you met Jesus? And that's all I know how to do because I have no power in my hands. I'm just a lowly, nameless servant with no power, no words, no ability, nothing but my slavery to my name. And I'm willing to be dropped wherever you want to put me. And if it's in a dark hole somewhere in the world, so let it be. I just want to be your servant. So I want to pray for you, but I think we've got to start with confessing. If, if you feel like, you know, there's, there's something in my heart that's just like not interested in God being in charge. I want to think the way I think. I want to do what I want to do. Maybe you're not a Christian at all, because this is the doorway in. It's been mentioned several times this morning already. The doorway in is Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. He's the boss. And I'm excited about it 
because he's a pretty great boss, but he's in charge. That's the way in. That's the doorway in. It's also the doorway we keep coming through as we walk with him. It's more and more submission to his authority over us. Wherever you take me, wherever you lead me, I'll follow. Whatever you ask of me, I'll do. It's the sharp edge of grace. He has done everything for you. He has, you have been bought with a price. You are not a free agent. Because he's done everything for you, it's all 100% his righteous and 0% of yours. You didn't meet him halfway or a third of the way there. You, he, you were dead in your sin and he made you alive. You could do nothing for yourself. What that means is he gets to ask anything of you he wants. You were 100% his servant. If he wants you to stay right here, you stay here. If he wants you married, you'll be married. If he wants you single, you'll be single. If he wants you in this church, that's where you're going to be. If he wants you in Turkey somewhere, that's where you're going to be. Wherever he says you go, that's where you go because he gets to ask because he paid for you. And it's a joy. There's no better life than that one. There's not. That's where the deepest satisfaction is going, I'm yours. And so I think we start there, and then I want to pray um, kind of in response to Michael Cotton's word this morning about the lost ones. I don't just want the lost ones in my life to get saved. I'm jealous to be the one that leads them. I mean, why not ask? I mean, I want them to get saved. But what if you or I could be the little servant girl or boy who whispered the witness and it brought them in? Wouldn't that be pretty exciting? <laughs> so why don't we start? I want you to stand together. We'll just take a minute to conf confess our sins to the Lord between you and him. If as I've been talking, you have discovered some remnants of hard-hearted rebellion in your heart, an unwillingness to fully submit something or all of yourself to him, then just talk to him and I'll pray for you. Lord, we confess that it seems like over and over we have to make these decisions. Over time, we feel as though we gain some control over our life, and quite often you come along and tap on our shoulder and say, who's in charge here? Sometimes it's in the little small decisions, sometimes it's in the big ones, but God, all we know is we don't want to be in charge, we want you to be. Because you're more good than us, you're more holy than us, you're more wise than us, you're more loving than we could ever be, you're more gracious than we could ever be. You being in charge is the best way, and you deserve our submission to you. So God, I ask you to come in once again, and would you pinpoint things maybe where we're not going the way you want us to go? not wanting to put the things that are really important to us at your feet.
Maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's our livelihood. Maybe it's some way of thinking that we don't want to let go of. Whatever it is, God, I just ask you to, would you come and take authority over that? We acknowledge you this morning as a church. We acknowledge you in all of our ways. Would you come and make straight our paths? Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for trying to shape ourselves and our lives in our own image instead of yours.